Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, so good to be with you. Again, my name is Kent. If we hadn't had the chance to meet, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me uh, to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew 7 is where we'll be here in just a bit. Uh, If you're brand new with us on a Sunday, uh, first off, welcome. So glad you're here. Um, Just for you to know, we have been really for the past several months or so uh, working our way through the book of Matthew in the Bible, just sort of passage by passage, line by line. Matthew, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is is a book all about the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we've been walking through it as a church, just figuring out what we can learn from all of those things. And right now, specifically, we are in a section of Matthew that is often called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is a collection of Jesus' sort of most famous teachings where he's walking through different aspects of our lives as followers of Jesus and just uh, kind of explaining what life should look like in what he calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, God's way of doing things in the world. And today in Matthew chapter 7, We're going to come across a widely known saying from Jesus. I'm mainly referring to the first half of verse 1 of chapter 7 that just says, do not judge or judge not, depending on your translation. I think most people, at least in America, Christian or not, background in church or not, most people in America are at least aware that Jesus said something like, do not judge. If you were to just go out to lunch at Market Square downtown and just ask a random assortment of people, what, what, what is something that Jesus said? What's something that Jesus taught? Chances are love people or love everyone and do not judge would be pretty high up on the types of answers that you would get from people because most people are aware that Jesus said something like, do not judge. A friend of mine is fond of saying that this is the one Bible verse that every non-Christian has memorized all the time, is do not judge. And, and while a lot of people know that Jesus said do not judge, I don't know that a lot of people know what Jesus meant by do not judge. You see, just because a verse in the Bible is well-known does not necessarily mean it's well-understood, and I think that's probably the case with this particular teaching of Jesus. I think often it's assumed when people hear Jesus say, do not judge, I think they usually assume that Jesus means something like, don't make moral assessments of other people. I think that's how most people interpret what Jesus says here. And to be honest, a lot of people are big fans of that interpretation of this verse. Because on the surface, it seems like what Jesus is saying fits right in with our cultural value of tolerance, right? So tolerance is that everybody has to figure out what is right or wrong for themselves, and we shouldn't impose our definition of right and wrong on anybody else, because that would be, at least in Jesus' words, to judge them. And I think a lot of people assume that that's what Jesus means here. He means don't make moral assessments of other people. But let's think about that for just a second, because if Jesus means don't make moral assessments. If do not judge means don't make moral assessments of other people, nobody ever told Jesus that. Because Jesus makes moral assessments of people all the time. I mean, just in the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, he just finished calling people hypocrites on repeat because they did things simply to be seen by other people doing good things. That's a moral assessment that he makes of that group of people. Today, he's going to use that word again. He's going to call people hypocrites for a certain type of moral behavior. In some ways, the entire Sermon on the Mount that we've been covering these past few months is just one passage after another of Jesus making moral assessments about things that are right and wrong. So, 
if Jesus means by do not judge, don't make moral assessments of other people, Jesus either suffered from short-term amnesia or he was very bad at following his own teaching. And I don't think either of those things are true of Jesus, which means he must have meant something else when he said, do not judge. So what do we think Jesus meant by this? When he said, do not judge, what was he intending to communicate? If, he, if he's not saying, don't make moral assessments of other people, what is he saying then? Here's how I'd put it. I'll sort of just give you the summary as we launch into things, and then we'll spend the rest of our time walking through this passage, unpacking it in detail. In summary, I would say that this passage we're about to read, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, is a passage about how to correct other people. How we go about correcting other people. So it's not really about whether or not you make a moral assessment of another person. It's about what you do with that moral assessment once you've made it. It's a passage about how you approach another person with your assessment of them. So there's a posture towards correcting other people that is helpful and beneficial to the other person, where you approach them with grace and, pa grace and patience and understanding. There's a way to do it that's helpful, and then there's another way to do it that is essentially condescending. It's condemning. It talks down to the other person. It assumes that you're better than them. And I think what Jesus is saying here is there's a way to do the first one. There's a way to correct people in a helpful way without doing the second one, without being condemning or self-righteous towards them. And I think he wants us to help understand how we go about doing the first and not the second. So that's what he's trying to draw out when he says, do not judge. So let's do this. Let's just walk through the passage starting in verse 1 of chapter 7 and see what Jesus has to say. Start with me in verse 1. Judge not, he says, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus just starts off with a guiding principle for how we correct other people. Here's the principle. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Generally speaking, Jesus says, the way that you treat, the other, the way that you treat other people is the way that they will treat you. That's generally how relationships Work. The judgment you pronounce is the judgment you will receive. The measure you use is the measurement other people will use when they are dealing with you. So if you are consistently compassionate and patient and gracious with other people when you address things in their life, chances are those people will be compassionate and patient and gracious towards you when the tables are turned. But if you are harsh and condescending and self-righteous towards other people when you have those conversations with them, chances are when the tables are turned, they will be the same way towards you. Jesus just says this is how human relationships work in general, is that people will treat you the way that you have a habit of treating them. So in light of all of that, anytime you prepare to correct another human being, one of the best, most helpful questions for you to ask yourself is if I were in their situation, how would I want to be treated? How would I want them to approach this conversation with me or a conversation like this? And then you let that thinking, that framework, guide your posture towards them in that situation. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul, likely thinking of Jesus' very words in Matthew 7, he actually puts it this way. And I find this really helpful. This is sort of a, a parallel passage to what we're talking about today. It, it deals with the same subject matter. It says this in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so sin, character flaw, whatever you want to call it, if anyone is caught in something like that, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But, Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Lest you too be tempted. So here it says, if anyone you know is caught in a transgression, if, if there's something in their life that they're not seeing clearly about themselves, they, they have a blind spot in some area of their character or life and you need to address it, 
that, that as their brother or sister, you should restore them. You should, you should address that thing. You should engage them on it. You should talk to them about it. In other words, we should see it as our responsibility to engage them on whatever that issue is as a fellow follower of Jesus. But, Paul says, we should do it in a spirit of gentleness. And that as we do it, we should keep watch on ourselves lest we too be tempted. Now, why would he say something like that? What's the purpose behind that? Here, I think, is why he says it. There is something about the process of engaging another person on a sin issue in their life that makes you inherently vulnerable to pride and arrogance towards them. Has anybody felt this when they go to have these types of conversations? So there's, there's something. I, I think it's just by nature of the situation, the scenario itself, that when you go to engage someone else on something off in their life, you just start to feel this self-righteousness and pride rise up in your heart in the meantime. And if you think about it, it makes some sense because it's like the very nature of the situation is that I see something in their life that they can't see, or at least it doesn't seem like they can see. And so it's so easy in those moments to just feel this condescension and self-righteousness and arrogance rise up within us in advance to those conversations. And so Paul says, while having these types of of correctional conversations with another follower of Jesus is a good, necessary thing for us to do as followers of Jesus, it's also a very dangerous thing to do because it can make us vulnerable to pride ourselves. It would be so easy to become conceited and puffed up with pride about having that conversation with them. The, the natural inclination is to think of yourself as just a little bit better than the person that you're correcting. And Paul says that mentality can be deadly to you and to them when it comes to the conversation going well as a result. So Jesus now is about to illustrate why that is such a harmful approach, why self-righteousness and arrogance and pride can be so destructive in those types of situations. And he's going to do it by way of a very colorful illustration. So take a look with me, picking it back up in verse 3 of Matthew 7. It says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So let's break down the scenario for just a second that Jesus lays out. First, I think it's important that we realize, and we kind of hit on this already, but I just want to make sure it's crystal clear, that in the scenario Jesus lays out here, both people are followers of Jesus. Do you see that? So he uses the word brother three times in three verses. Brother is sort of the language of Jesus. It's this gender neutral term, actually, that refers to any other follower of Jesus who you are in a relationship with and is in the community of faith with you. So Jesus has in mind two followers of Jesus in this scenario. And he says, imagine that another follower of Jesus that you're in relationship with has a speck in their eye. So uh, the, the word speck is, is actually exactly what it sounds like. It's a piece of dust, like a particle of sawdust in the other person's eye. The word for log is also what it sounds like. It's like basically a two by four coming out of your face. So it's easy for us to miss because we don't think of Jesus as funny, but Jesus was likely trying to be funny here. Like this, was, this would have been met with some giggles from the crowd that he was explaining it to. So the only way I know to, to sort of help you see what Jesus is getting at here is to just act it out exactly like Jesus intended his audience to imagine it. So it's a two-person scenario. I need another person. Josh from my life group, would you mind helping me? Can you come up here? All right, everybody give Josh a hand. I did not tell him I was doing this. He has no clue what he's in for. So why don't you stand right there? All right, so Josh, this is actually a really helpful analogy because Josh is literally in my life group. He's literally another follower of Jesus. We're in relationship together. So let's say Josh has something in his life that I need to address. Jesus describes it as a speck in his eye, a piece of dust in his eye. I didn't know how to make dust visible to all of you guys, so we're gonna use glitter. 
So, Josh, I want you to just take a little bit of glitter. Are you glad that I didn't tell you you were doing this now? Okay. So just take a little bit of glitter, and I won't, make, I won't make you put it in your eye. That would be horrible. But maybe just like put it under your eye, something like that. Is this what you always wanted to do is wear eye glitter in front of a room full of people that you don't know? I thought you might want to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, so Josh indeed has glitter in or on, as it were, his eye. And, and I'm his brother. I'm another follower of Jesus. I want to help him get that out of his eyes so that he can see more clearly. But I have a problem, and the problem is that I have this coming out of my eye. Am I close enough? <laughs> can we get a little bit closer? <laughs> okay. So, while I'm trying to help Josh get the glitter out of his eye, I have a two-by-four coming out of my eye. So it's like, no matter how helpful I want to be to him, I, just, I can't quite get close enough to actually help him with what's going on in his life. And chances are, it, it, it's not just that I can't be helpful. This is really heavy, by the way. I really should have worked out more before I did this illustration. But so the, the problem is not just that I can't be helpful to him. The problem is that I might end up clobbering him in the face with what's going on in my life, right? So this is the problem. And so, and so Jesus says, hey, why is it that you see so clearly the, the, the speck in your brother's eye, but you somehow can't see the log coming out of your eye? And he says, if you actually want to be helpful, you, you have to learn to actually take the log out of your eye Cast it aside in some way so that you can be helpful to get the speck or the glitter out of his eye. I'm not going to actually get the glitter out of his eye. That would be a very intimate moment for us to share on stage. But you get the point, right? All right, everybody give Josh a hand. He did great. Also, maybe somebody help him get the glitter out of his eye at some point. Or you can just leave it on. If you want to leave it on, that's fine too. So that's the idea. That's the, that's the word picture that Jesus is painting for us. He says, hey, why is it that, that you are so clear on the fact, you are so locked in on the thing that is in your brother's eye, but you're completely oblivious to the thing that is in your own eye? Why is that? And I think one question that that makes us ask in response is, what is the log? What is Jesus saying the log in your eye is. What, what does that stand for or represent in the story? And to be honest, I, I think it could be a lot of things. Uh, I think it could be some unrelated sin issue in your own life that you're not dealing with, that you're not seeking out the grace and forgiveness of God for. It, it could be something unrelated to the scenario entirely. But let me tell you what I think it is. I think Jesus is actually saying that the judgmentalism itself is the log. I think he's saying that the problem, the thing that prevents you from being helpful to your brother, to your sister in these conversations is actually the self-righteousness that is in your soul as you seek to have those conversations. It's the fact that you walk into those conversations arrogantly and self-righteously and looking down your nose at the other person. And if you do that, and if you don't deal with that posture in yourself before you engage in those conversations, not only are you not going to be able to help them, you might actually end up harming them. You might leave them worse off than they were before the conversation. So listen, uh, some of you wonder why it never goes well when you engage your spouse or your fiance, or your boyfriend or girlfriend on a sin issue of theirs. And this is why. Some of you don't, don't understand why when you engage a roommate that you live with on, on something that is off in their life, a sin issue in their life, it never goes well. And this is why. Some of you don't realize why every time you talk to somebody in your life group about some sinful aspect or some character flaw in their life, that it doesn't go well ever, and this is why. Because you're approaching the conversation as someone who is better than the other person. And I'll tell you one thing about that. Uh, it is easy to tell from your tone. 
Even if nothing you say communicates I am better than you, a lot of times all it takes is tone. Tone can communicate I think I am better than you, at least in this regard. And, and so some of you, you, you go into these conversations just guns ablazing. I, I heard a friend of mine one time describe it as the machine gun approach to correcting another person. So you just start shooting at a bunch of different things and you hope something works. I think that's how a lot of us approach correction. And we just, we waltz into a relationship and, and we start to engage them on every single aspect of their life that, that is off. And to be honest, sometimes it's not even every aspect of their life that's off. It's just every aspect of their life that is off that gets on our nerves. That's all it is. It, it's just, I, I'm, I want to make their sin a big deal because their sin inconveniences me bothers me, frustrates me, and not I want to help them with this thing in their life because it might be destructive to them and I want to benefit them. And, and so some of us, we, these conversations in our life never go well. People never respond well. And, and we respond with stuff like, well, I guess they just don't like tough love. They just can't handle it. I guess that's what happened. And maybe, maybe that's what happened. Or maybe it's just that you're using tough love to conceal the fact that you're kind of a jerk to people when you point out stuff in their life. And it never goes well because the other person just inherently gets that you think you're better than them. And the conversation can't go well when that's the case. You've got a log coming out of your eye. And so Jesus says, instead, if you really want to be helpful, if you really want to benefit the other person, if you really want to help them see things in their life and want to help them grow as a human being, you need to take the log out of your eye first. You need to go before God and maybe before other people in your life that know you and the other person and go, hey, I, I see this thing that is off in this person's life and, and I know I need to have the conversation with them about what it is, but here's my problem. I, I think I think I'm better than them and that's not okay. And I know that if I'm gonna be helpful to that other person, I need to wrestle with the fact that I'm not better than them. My sin may look different than theirs, but I'm not better than them. And what I need to do is that I need to seek out God's grace and forgiveness and his compassion towards me in this area of my life. I need to see myself like God sees me and then I'm gonna be able to see clearly to help the other person see what's off in their life. We need that clarity from the Holy Spirit if these conversations are ever gonna go well. That's the solution. That's how you gain the ability to correct another follower of Jesus in a helpful way. So we might put it this way, just to summarize everything we just said. Followers of Jesus deal with their own sin first so that they can be helpful to others. Followers of Jesus deal with their own sin first so that then they can be helpful to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, and I found this incredibly helpful. He once said that there are actually three stages of spiritual maturity for a follower of Jesus. Three stages of spiritual maturity. He says the first stage of spiritual maturity is when you are disgusted by everyone else's sin. So that's a good thing. It's, it's good to notice sin in other people. But the first stage is when you're disgusted by everyone else's sin. The second stage of spiritual maturity is when you're disgusted by your own sin, when you see it as the biggest deal. You see it as the thing that needs to be addressed. And then he says the third stage, the final stage of Christian maturity is when you re-enter the community of God as someone who has received incredible grace and forgiveness for your sin and therefore stands ready to offer incredible grace and forgiveness to other people for their sin. That's the final stage. That's what we're shooting for. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to in this passage. Does that make sense? You follow in what he's saying there. Okay, now with all of that unpacked, I do just want to point out, and this is really important for us to get, the goal in this scenario is still to help the other person get the dust out of their eye. Did you see that? So, so Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't worry about the other, sin, the other person's sin at all. All you need to worry about is your sin. That's not what he says. He actually says very clearly in verse 5, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
So I don't think we're meant to take away from all of this that until we're some sort of perfect, immaculate human being that never struggles with any sin at all, we can't engage other people on their sin. That wouldn't make any sense. We're never to that point until we see Jesus face to face, right? So that would mean nobody ever corrects anybody. So Jesus' point is, is not that we can't correct other people until we're perfect. His point is simply this, that every time we go to correct a brother or a sister about their sin, about something off in their life, it should automatically trigger this process of wrestling with what's in our own hearts first, of examining ourselves first, of identifying any condescension, any self-righteousness, any arrogance in us, and repenting of it, owning up to it, repenting of it. That's the goal. And when it's done that way, Jesus says, what we should find in the other person, in the person that we're trying to correct in some way, is receptiveness. They should be receptive. They should have a a receptive posture to the thing in their life that we're trying to address with them. To put it another way, followers of Jesus welcome and appreciate being corrected. Followers of Jesus welcome and appreciate being corrected. So I get this from a lot of different places in the Bible. This is all over the place, especially in the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, this idea is just almost in every single chapter. It feels like it's in every other verse in the book of Proverbs. I'll just give you one example of what I'm talking about for time's sake. This is Proverbs 12, verse 1. We'll put it on the screen. It says, whoever loves discipline, or we might say there, correction. Correction is a form of discipline. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Now, before we go any further, I just need to make it very clear. I would never call you guys stupid, okay? The Bible might have just called you stupid, though, but I would never do it. I just want to make sure that's very, very clear. I would never say that about you guys. But what this verse is saying is that the person who, who welcomes and appreciates and maybe even asks for correction from other people is wise. That means they love knowledge. That means they want to grow. They want to become a more complete human being. But it says the one who hates correction the one who, who wars against it, fights against it, the one who gets defensive and, and writes it off or, or maybe even bites back at the person who gave us the correction, that person, Proverbs says, is a fool. They don't understand the world the right way. That's what the word foolishness means in the Bible is that we're, we're not approaching the world and our lives in the right way. So here's the way it works. If you are a follower of Jesus, the assumption is that you realize you have blind spots. The assumption is that you know there are aspects of your life that are not perfectly in line with the good news of Jesus. Now, the trick is that you don't know what parts of your life are that way, at least not at all times, right? There might be areas of your life that that you think are perfectly in line with the way of Jesus and actually aren't. But the assumption is that you have blind spots. You have parts of your life that you do not and cannot see clearly on your own. That's, That's the nature of a blind spot is that you're blind to them. And therefore, the understanding is that you actually need correction occasionally from other followers of Jesus so that you can become who God made you to be. First Timothy is going to say that, that each of us need correction so that we might be, quote, complete and equipped for every good work. That's what correction does in the life of a follower of Jesus. It makes us complete and equipped for every good work. So if you're a follower of Jesus and no one ever corrects you or you write it off whenever they do, you can't be who you were made to be in Jesus. Because correction is one primary means by which God forms us into his image over time. So when a person comes to you then and brings correction into your life, they, they engage you on an aspect of your life or your character that is not okay, the assumption is that a follower of Jesus responds with a receptive spirit to those things. You respond with gratitude that that other person would be willing to risk a difficult conversation with you in order to benefit you. 
You respond by welcoming and appreciating it because you understand that as a follower of Jesus, you need that correction. Now, notice I didn't say you enjoy it. I think it's okay to not outright enjoy correction. Like, it's okay if you're not jumping up and down with joy when someone corrects you about a sin issue in your life. But at the same time, you you do receive it with a willing and listening spirit. You ask questions. You ask them to explain more. If you don't see it yet, you go, hey, I'm not sure I'm tracking yet. Can you tell me more? Can you give examples? Can you help me see where this might play out or what made you notice it in some way? And and you, you fight to hear what they're saying. You fight to hear the correction and receive the correction that they're offering, even if you don't like exactly how they put it or how they said it or how they worded it. Because that is how we become complete as followers of Jesus. That's how we become equipped for every good work, is that we, we appreciate and we welcome and maybe even ask for correction into our lives. Because we see, we understand the inherent value in that correction. And believe it or not, I, I think that feeds us right into this last odd verse, verse 6 in our passage about dogs and pigs and pearls. Because while correction from a fellow follower of Jesus is of incredible value, that does not mean that everyone can perceive its value. So there are people in the world that don't yet have the framework to, to welcome and appreciate correction in their life. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at, believe it or not, in verse 6. So just read the verse with me, and then we'll talk for a bit about what Jesus means exactly. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So the question is what in the world is Jesus saying here, right? So let's just start with the basics. This is going to be really weird, but I promise it's going somewhere. Here are the basics. There are different forms of life on planet Earth. One of the most basic forms of life that we're all familiar with is a plant. Welcome to biology class. Did I not tell you we were doing biology class today? Welcome. I promise this is going somewhere. Like I said, one of the most basic forms of life is a plant. A plant is a living organism, meaning it responds to food. So things like soil and water, if you put those things around or with a plant, it's going to respond to those things, right? It, it responds by gaining nutrients and growing or, or becoming bigger or wider, whatever it is. It responds to food. But at the same time, a plant is not capable of anticipating food. So, like, a tree does not hear thunder off in the distance and start getting excited because it knows rain is coming, okay? It doesn't start clapping its limbs together in excitement. That's just not what a plant does. It doesn't have the ability to perceive things on that plane yet, okay? You know what does respond to anticipate food? A dog, as any dog owner can attest. So if you have a dog, you know that if you just start walking into the room or close to the room where the doggy treats are, your dog will lose their mind, right? Because the dog knows if they go in there and they bring out food for me, that goes well for me. And so they anticipate it, they get excited about it. Does that make sense so far? So, so Jesus says they're able to anticipate food. Now, Do you know what a dog can't appreciate for food? Is a pearl necklace. If you take a pearl necklace or something like a diamond ring and you set it on the floor in front of a hungry dog, they are either going to look at it very confused at what just happened, or maybe they try to eat it and then get very frustrated at you because it's not an edible thing. Does that make sense? So while that pearl necklace or that diamond ring does have value... It is valuable, that dog cannot perceive the value of it yet. It doesn't have the ability to perceive the value of what what you're giving it. So here I think is what Jesus is saying. If you offer biblical correction to someone who can't perceive its value, it may not go well. If you offer biblical correction to someone who can't perceive the value of that correction, 
it may not go well. So just to set everybody's mind at ease, Jesus is not insulting people by calling them dogs and pigs. It's a parable, okay? So it's, it's figurative language. He's trying to explain a concept by way of a parable, by way of something that people in his audience would have been familiar with. And all he's saying is that if you offer this same type of biblical correction to someone that doesn't follow Jesus, that can't perceive the value of that correction, it's not going to be a good conversation. It's most likely not going to be a fruitful conversation. They, that person may, in Jesus' language, trample it under their feet and turn and attack you. Because when you offer biblical correction to another person, you are operating under the assumption that they see the world like you do. You're, you're assuming that they see things like you do, that they have the framework in their mind for why that correction is desired and helpful and valuable to them. But if that other person doesn't follow Jesus, that may not be true of them. They may not have that framework yet. They may not think about the world that way yet. And so while what you are offering them may be good and helpful and valuable, they may not be able to perceive that value yet. They may not see it in that light. So let's say you have a friend who doesn't follow Jesus. And let's say this friend you've noticed is constantly hopping from relationship to relationship. They're getting romantically, sexually involved in each of these relationships. And let's just say that you know about this as a follower of Jesus and you want to talk to them about it sometime soon. So you sit down to coffee with them, you hang out with them, and you just start to launch into all the reasons that what they're doing is, is unwise and, and morally wrong and how it's not what God wants for their life. And, and you tell them the scripture says that it's wrong. And here's the Bible verses that say how wrong it is. How is that conversation going to go with somebody that doesn't follow Jesus? Probably not great, right? Because they're going to feel judged and condemned and shamed and there's actually a decent chance they may get upset and, and turn things around on you and start calling out things in your life that they don't like in response. They may, in Jesus' words, turn and attack you. Now, here's the thing. It, is what you're offering them true from a biblical perspective? Yeah, it's true. It, is what you're offering them valuable in the broadest sense of the word? Yeah, it's valuable. But the thing is, they don't have the framework for why it's valuable yet. And you're assuming that they do, which means you're actually doing something unhelpful rather than something helpful. So they don't have the framework for why you're telling them those things. From their perspective, you're just telling them that all the ways that they're currently trying to find life in the world are wrong and sinful, but you're not showing them where true life is found instead. So instead of doing that, instead of launching into the conversation as a correctional sort of conversation where you're trying to call them out on things that they don't have a framework for yet, what if instead you just use those moments with them to unpack for them the gospel, the good news of Jesus? What if, what if you spent that time unpacking for them how you, at one point in your life, found life that was more satisfying than anywhere else you were trying to find life and what that felt like for you? What if you explained to them instead that, that you were once in a place too where you thought all these different things would bring you life and joy and satisfaction and, and what the process looked like for Jesus to draw you to himself and what means he used and, and how he helped you think about the world differently? What if, what if you used those conversations to unpack for them who Jesus is and why Jesus matters practically in their life. And then, what if you were to spend time praying after that, that they respond to that conversation with curiosity about who Jesus is? That, that eventually, by understanding the good news of the gospel, they get to a point where they can perceive the value of the wisdom that you might offer them in the future. But it all has to start with them understanding the gospel. That's the framework. That's what makes sense of the rest of this. And until we understand the gospel, loving correction from other people is not, is not going to make sense. It, it, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Because first, we have to understand the gospel. That's where it all starts. 
And really, that's where it starts for every single one of us, right? With an understanding of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms, but the good news of Jesus comes to all of us in the form of loving confrontation. That's what the gospel is. It's loving confrontation. So it's confrontation in the way that it says to us in no uncertain terms, the way you're living is not okay. Whether that's rebellion or religion, it says the way that you're living on your own is not okay. The things that you're finding your hope in, your value in, your identity in right now, those things are not where life is found. That message in and of itself is confrontational, right? It's confrontational in its very message. The message of the cross is confrontational by nature of what it is because it gives us a visual representation where it says, hey, your sin is a big deal. So big of a deal that Jesus had to die for it. That is a confrontational message. There's no way around it. But at the same time, the gospel is not just any confrontation. It's loving confrontation. Jesus does not come to us and say, unless you change your behavior and your actions, I'm done with you. I'm out. Jesus does not say, you better figure out how to shape up and live better or else we're done here. That's not it. Rather, Jesus comes to us through the cross with nail-scarred hands and says, the way that you're viewing life and self and reality is all off and it cannot bring life, but in my death, I have made a way for you to find life. I I have taken onto myself your sins, your faults, your failures, your destructive behavior, all of that and all of its effects, and I have dealt with it already in the cross. I've put it on my shoulders and made a way for it to go away. And if you'll let me, Jesus says, I will walk with you through the difficult process of finding freedom and healing from all of those things. I will walk with you as you put away the old you and live into the new you that Jesus has made possible. Jesus says, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to talk down to you. I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to tell you the truth and walk alongside you as we find a better way forward. The gospel at its core is loving confrontation. And when you realize that, it changes the way that you confront and correct other people in your life. Because you are no longer just the person who needs to go correct other people. You're not the sin police that is there to go out and point out everything that's wrong in everybody else's life. That's not who you are. You are also one that needed correction yourself, that still needs correction yourself. Which means you're not over and above the other person that you're talking to. You're actually the same as them. Sure, your sin may look different on the surface. You may struggle with different things, struggle with things in different ways. But you are precisely the same as that other person in the way that you needed loving confrontation in your life and you received it through Jesus. Which enables you to offer that same type of loving confrontation to other people in return. And from that same perspective, if you are on the receiving end of correction from another follower of Jesus, if you're the person who is being engaged on your own sin, the gospel is also what enables you to receive it with grace. You can receive it because you see other people's correction as a means of grace through which the good news of Jesus flows directly to you. You see it as the gift in your life that it truly is. And that enables you to receive it well. So let's just land here. I've got three questions that we'll go through real quickly just for us to to think on. I want us to wrestle with, is this something that I understand and that I put into practice in my life as a follower of Jesus? So three questions that I think are worth considering as we move into our life group environments and conversations this week. First, Is there anyone that you are avoiding correcting even though you know it would be helpful? Is there anyone you are avoiding correcting even though you know it would be helpful? So has the Holy Spirit given you a window into some aspect 
of a brother or sister's life, an area that they need help seeing. Something in their life that is not okay, and for whatever reason, God has put you in close proximity to them, relationship with them, to to help them see it in some practical way. Because remember, as that person's brother or sister, you actually have a responsibility to them to point that thing out. So so you putting off those conversations and refusing to have those conversations, it's not just that you're valuing comfort and that maybe you should have and you didn't. It's actually that you're sinning against them. You're, You're refusing to help them become more and more like who Jesus is. It, it, it's actually that you're, you're doing a disservice towards them because God has given you the ability to see something and you aren't willing to have that conversation with them. So is there a conversation that needs to be had this week, sometime soon, that you've been putting off or avoiding having? Next question. In the process to deal with whatever that is, how are you planning to deal with your sin and self-righteousness first? How are you planning to deal with your sin and self-righteousness first? What is your plan, in other words, to get the log out of your own eye? Put another way, what is your posture towards that conversation of correction that you need to have? Are, Are you sinfully excited about it? Because having that conversation with that other person makes you feel better than them? Or are you thankful that you get to have the conversation because you want to see that person grow more and more into the image of Jesus. And you're grateful, even if you don't want to have the conversation, even if you're not excited about it, that God has given you the relationship with that person to be a part of their discipleship to Jesus, to help them become more who they were made to be. So what are you going to do, if if it's the former, if it's an arrogant, self-righteous posture, what are you going to do to correct that in yourself before you go to have the conversation with that person? And last one, are you appreciating and welcoming correction from other people? Are you appreciating and welcoming correction from other people? Lastly, if you're in the room and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, can I just ask you, do you perceive the value of correction and wisdom from other followers of Jesus? Do you perceive that as valuable? When when someone engages you on something that is off in your life, do you receive and welcome it? Do you receive it with gratitude? Do you accept it as, oh, wow, that person was willing to have this conversation with me even though it's uncomfortable and even though it's awkward and I'm thankful for that? Or do you respond with defensiveness or justifying yourself and explaining it away or or just ignoring it? Maybe you just say, oh, yeah, I'm aware of that, and you don't talk anything more about it because you don't want to actually repent of what it is. Because if your default response to correction from other followers of Jesus is is to reject it in some way, is to, to write it off, to ignore it in some way, or if your tendency is to to bark back at whoever it was that offered correction into your life, to, to start accusing them of things in response. If that's your default response to correction, I think Jesus' assessment of you would be, you may not understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because followers of Jesus welcome, appreciate, and offer wisdom and correction. They ask for it, they seek it out, they say, hey, is there anything in my life that you see that's off that you can help me see more clearly? That's a regular question that a follower of Jesus asks other followers of Jesus. So we, we ask for it, we appreciate it, we seek it out, and also we're willing to offer it to other people. We offer it with a humble and helpful spirit to others because we know that we have a responsibility to other followers of Jesus in our life to help them become more like Jesus. And sometimes that happens through correction. So followers of Jesus see correction as a necessary part of their discipleship to both give and receive correction with grace and humility. And all of that comes back to, do you understand what Jesus did for you? Do you understand how he relates to you? Do you understand how he offered loving confrontation to you 
and are you then willing to do that for others? That's the question before us. That's what we'll wrestle with this week. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we thank you first and foremost for your grace, for your compassion towards us, for your understanding, for your, um, for your help and your insight to see ourselves more clearly. But God, those of us that are followers of Jesus, we just want to acknowledge um, we do not see ourselves with 2020 vision. God, we need your help and the help of others in our lives to, to see things that we don't see, to notice things that we don't notice, to, to call out things that, that we're not willing to, to acknowledge in our life. And God, we need that so that we can become the type of people that you made us to be. God, I realize that all of this flies in the face of how we are discipled as a society to, to see friendships and relationships with other people. God, so often we are We're discipled to see other people as just our cheerleaders. And we just need people that'll cheer us on and who think everything we do is awesome. And God, the, the truth is we do need people in our corner. We need people who are rooting us on. We need people to encourage us. But we also need people to correct us. We also need people who are willing to, to risk the difficult conversation to benefit us to offer us wisdom and guidance and help through the Holy Spirit that's alive in them. And so God, my prayer is that you would give all of us humility, those of us offering correction and those of us receiving it, every single one of us, that you would give us grace and humility to see ourselves rightly. And through the ability to see ourselves rightly, God, would you make us people that are passionate about seeing each other grow into who we are made to be. They're willing to navigate those conversations when they're uncomfortable and when they're awkward. God, we know you're good. We know that you're faithful to form us day by day, minute by minute, into the image of your son. And so, God, would you just help us to receive it? Would you help us to listen? Would you help us to respond? And, God, through whatever means necessary, would you conform us into the image of Jesus? That's what we want. That's what, that's what we need. That's what our world needs. And so, God, would you make us into that sort of people? We ask this for our good, for your glory. Amen.